You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Well, hey, welcome back to Real Investor Radio. It's Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere. We are here today again uh, with Melody Wright. Uh, Melody is a longtime veteran of the banking and financial services industry, and we've just spent uh, the entire last episode. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, be sure to check out uh, episode 20 uh, and then come back to this one. But we're having just sort of a lively discussion on you know, where we are right now in the residential uh, single family and multifamily space, Melody has uh, done a tremendous amount of research uh, really for the past couple of years, right, Melody? Yeah. On uh, where the market is. But not only that, she also jumped in her car and went out and uh, traveled to several key markets around the country. And you're also now uh, tracking 70 markets around the country. Is that what you said? Seven yeah. zero. That's correct. All right. So let's just jump back into the discussion here where we left off on the last one was um, we talked briefly about sort of this financial shell game that you've seen uh, some of the builders around the country playing and um, in terms of contracts, permits, uh, land and how they're sort of accounting for all of that. Maybe you could jump into that quickly. And then I know Jack has a bunch of questions as well. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, Jack was like, surely these guys know better. And, and I have the same sentiment. Um, but I think one thing I wanted to mention, you know, when I did call people in the industry, uh, a technology platform that tracks new, new build inventory and others, I kept asking them about the local private builders and um, they could, didn't have any answer for that. So, you know, a huge fan of Zaleman, as you know, and mentioned Jack, um, but they don't, they don't, those builders don't respond to those surveys. Uh, Zonda doesn't track many of those builders. And so I think probably what a lot of the nationals are missing um, is that local inventory that's being built up. And because of the delays in permit recording and things like that, that happened during COVID, as well as we're seeing lawsuits on permits, um, you know, I think there are probably some more examples than we even know of things being built without the right permits. Um, I think I think that there was just a everybody kind of and something you said on the last show, Craig, that where are all these people coming from? I think a lot of these cities thought every single Californian, every single New Yorker was moving to their city and mm -hmm. they built that way. And then you had these narratives of, oh, there's 300 people moving here a day. Well, when was that? When was that? Oh, well, that, you know, that data is two years old. <laughs> it's like, or Florida, everybody's like, everybody's moving to Florida. Okay, go look at the census data. Since World War II, uh, it's the same trend. In fact, the last three years are lower than trend. Um, so, because everybody's always moving to Florida. I think what's happened is we're in a data dungeon and all of the things that we have relied on to kind of tell us, and by the way, they didn't work so well last time, right, Craig? I mean, you know, uh, all the things I remember writing out seven, eight, nine, thinking things were going to get better based on what all the housing experts were telling me based on the data, based on permits. Like um, we thought everything was going to get better. It, you know, that didn't happen. <laughs> and so sure. I, I think that that so you can look at it. I don't think people are necessarily doing anything intentionally wrong. But if you understand how this all works, like the systems, the technologies 
not there. You're not chipping every single new home. Somebody's filling out a spreadsheet that then goes up to their manager. Then that goes then up to another manager. Then that goes up to corporate. And so I think that what you, and I've heard this a lot from builders and, and people in the field is that a, a project manager on a builder site knows a heck of a lot more than corporate does. And so I think that as well, people like Zillman, when she goes somewhere like Austin or Phoenix, she gets picked up at the airport. They take her to her meeting. They show her the sites they want to show her, right? She's not getting out and just driving around on her own. And if you drive out in Phoenix, which you probably know, Craig, you can't see anything on the highways. It's just the big walls. And so you, you got to go behind know. the wall. You got to go behind the wall. And when you go behind the wall, you're like, holy mother of God, like Round Rock, Texas is a suburb of Austin where they were going to build a big Amazon facility that got canceled. I've never seen anything like this in my life. It, you go a block and it'd be another new build, a block, another new build. Then you turn right and it'd be seven or eight more sites all. And, and you would ask the people locally, okay, well, what about this site? Oh, I didn't know that there's another site over there. Yeah. Cause even people that you drive the same commute every day. Right. And you think, Oh, that's just my, that's my neighborhood. That's my one thing. Well, go five blocks over and it's the same story, but nobody is seeing that larger story. And it's kind of due to the fact that we look at data. You know, I can tell you right now, Google knows how many people live in Austin, but the federal government doesn't. Why is that? You know, because that's the other thing I really tried to get a sense of population demographic move. I mean, I was tearing through you know, census trying to figure this out. But what you realize is nobody knows. I mean, like, and everybody has a different view, but go ahead, Craig. No, or please, Jack, Jack jump in. So, I, yeah, I can see Jack's head's head. I know, I can tell. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the, the demographic side of things because we do continue to have growing household formation. Immigration's down. So the election could have a lot to do with, with that idea. But when you, when you have growing household formation, I guess I'm trying to tie two ideas together. Like you think that they're, they're overbuilding and they're just going to keep overbuilding and get it to a point where we're not, where that growing household formation is not going to be able to absorb that inventory because yeah, of I, even despite price point, I guess that's where I'm struggling a little bit. Is that like yeah. whenever, whenever one household moves and you know, one person sells a house, well, they have to go somewhere, whether it's, for sale inventory or for rent inventory, I agree. But I still, my understanding, I guess my understanding, uh, you know, I'm a big, big caveat there, right? Is that we are still forming households at a rate that exceeds the a number of houses that are being built. It may be an uncomfortable reshuffling uh, in order to fill those houses. But, you know, when when you want to put a ring on it, you know, you're not, you're getting out of the basement. And if that means that you're, you know, moving to the exurbs of Phoenix, uh, you know, that's what you got to do. No, like, no, like, like what, what, why, why isn't household formation going to yeah. absorb this given that the one is higher than, given that household formation is higher than permits? Well, so a couple of things. One, I would go that Harvard study from January is fantastic. It graphically represents how much household formation we actually pulled for during COVID 
and looking at 100%. what that demand is going to be in the future. Um, and it's going to be muted. But I think that what everybody yeah. is not talking about are the 15 million vacant homes as well that are going to come. I mean, the uncomfortable thing about our demographics is we're not having babies the way we used to. And we are, we are looking more like Japan every day. Uh, meaning that, you know, we have this massive boomer population that, I mean, it's sad, but unfortunately, you know, <laughs> they will move on and uh, you know, what's happening. So it's all from pure numbers game. I still would say we overbuilt Jack, but let's, before I even get there, let's, let's say that, you know, these boomers try to leave these homes to their kids. Well, they can't even afford them right now because of the property taxes and insurance are more than what most of us would consider a, a healthy mortgage payment at the moment. And so they I, won't. I, I, I do yeah. completely. Yeah, I've I've had a I've I've had that concern for a long time. Like the whole the whole mm. Florida migration, everyone's like, everyone's coming here. The low taxes, the politics are right. Like, and people people are like I'm like, well, what happens in 20 years when like everybody who's seven who's 65 today or you know 70 today is just you know like you said unfortunately unfortunately dead, right? Like, who's going to live in them then? Because the next generation isn't as big as that generation was, Correct. and so like. Yeah. So I do, but so so I completely subscribe to the the million dollar Florida house may be screwed, oh, you know, five to ten years from now. But I'm struggling connecting that to how I should be freaking, you know, why I should be freaking out over the or why I should be making different business decisions over the next twelve months. Yeah, so I I think you'd have to see it like so nothing so everything that's being built out there is the million dollar home even the ones that are saying they're going for four hundred to five hundred thousand you can talk to local realtors in Florida right now and people are expecting more like eight hundred nine hundred thousand for them and so it's the expectation issue so you, when you look at these builders you look at their building their their balance sheets you quickly understand that everyone, they don't see this, uh, this misalignment that you and I are talking about. They don't, they think that there are enough people to afford these $400,000 homes. Um, and they're just simply are not because number one, they're not just 400,000. When you think about the cost to carry, especially somewhere like Florida with the insurance and taxes and car insurance, second highest in the country. I mean, it's just, it's gone so far from affordable at this point. And so when you, in the permit story, let's start there again. I don't, what I think is absent is, is truly looking at the permits in detail. And, and I did something in a, one of my sub stacks called Down and Dirty with a map. Um, but I think that we still don't even have the correct uh, understanding of how many permits, how much inventory is actually out there being built. And we've lost our city planners who, you know, previously might have been the people that would understand that we have too much inventory in certain places. And so um, and then on top of that, the multifamily and the built to rent and these vacant homes. Does so, the build to rent scare you? I would I, like I always take comfort in the build to rent because of the affordability. Like you can you know, be, be, because they, you know, because they are three hundred thousand dollar houses, not eight hundred thousand dollar houses. I, I worry less about that segment. Well, but they're asking, so for instance, let's take Sevierville, Tennessee, okay, where there's 8,000 short-term rentals in a tiny little county, uh, you know, in Appalachia. 
And they built they built these built to rent sites to theoretically house the serfs, I guess, so that they could work, you know, for these. Uh, Love but you, it. You go on Realtor.com for rent, and they're trying to rent these things for two thousand, three thousand dollars a month, and this is everywhere. So, you know, yeah, I hear yes, that. Yeah. Do I have scrapers that you know can get data? But I look, I look in these places. And you look at what's for rent out there and you're laughing like where I am in Johnson City, Tennessee right now, like they went out, bought, they built $800,000 homes. Then they're trying to pivot them to rental, thinking they're going to get $4,000 in rent. And this is on all the sites. You see it everywhere, every one of these cities. So there is a misunderstanding still in the market of what they can get for rent. And, and they have built so much built to rent, not really thinking about total housing stocks. So you know, yeah. I think it's just it's this Jack, this this blue sky mentality um, that I feel like, uh, you know, the builders that Melody is talking about, um, they're already pregnant. You know, they bought the land at a certain price. Their their costs are at a certain price. They've got a performer that's saying they're going to, you know, hit this mark. Same, same with uh, landlords, you know. Um, we know a lot of landlords. Jack lends to landlords all over the country. And the the mentality that I see is, you know, I'm charging $2,200 a month for this place that, you know, five years ago I was getting $1,300 for. And it's this, that's going to last forever mentality. And I don't, you know, we're already seeing rents coming down in places like Sevierville, uh, you know, and, and other key markets around the country. You've got affordability right now is at an all-time low in terms. I, I think I read the other day that uh, housing costs just in mortgage PITI is around 40% right now for most people, which is higher than it's ever been in our history. And the question is, how does that last? How do, you, how does, how do we keep that up? And so, um, as, especially as rates are rising and the economy uh, begins to cool, or, or, or I'm sorry, we have inflation, I should say. So, you know, that's the tale that I see. That's the that's the big thing that I feel uh, as I'm looking at the market. And um, so what's the know, so, Jack. so then what's the move? Right. Like, yeah, you, that's you, you, clearly you hate builder stocks. That's easy. But like beyond beyond shorting builder stocks, um, you know, what, what, so what, what do we do about it? You know? Yeah. Like, I, that's a great question, Melody. One of the things that we that uh, we love to do on the show here is. You know, break it down for the guy who's out there trying to uh, do some investing and, you know, building a portfolio or, you know, that's the people who listen to this show. So let's break it down. Rubber meets the road for those folks. Yeah, no, I think that's one of the plays. Right. And and to me, the biggest play is understanding where the distress is, uh, because I think that there are certain markets where you could pull the Craig playbook, right, where you could go out and you'll there's going to be people needing to unload this spec inventory needing to, and, and a lot of it, and this is where, okay, I don't know, but I think a lot of the certificates of occupancy aren't being filed um, because people maybe want to just pay tax on the land because they know that this isn't the market to start listing some of these homes. Um, so there's a lot going on, but I think if, you know, if you can get a sense, if you can find these pockets, understand the distress and either, you know, kind of partner to, uh, you know, look at foreclosures, negotiate, uh, you know, get with the local agents because, you know, soon 
it, especially in Florida, I believe uh, that no one is going to be able to argue about what's happening. I mean, I have, I know people that are houses are sitting that they thought would be gone in, in two weeks. And so I think prices that, that little strike is about to start um, uh, kind of defrosting a little bit because of super prime stress where they they actually need to offload a property. They have to uh, for various different reasons. But I think being in those markets, understanding when the tide is turning to be able to get in and take advantage. I, um, and that's understanding the credit profile and what's going on in those particular markets. So you have markets like the Northeast where you don't have this like crazy building, right? Are those markets just, are those markets like relatively insulated by, uh, because of that factor? Or do you think that the contagion makes its way to even land constrained markets? Do you think that the land overbuilding makes its way to even, uh, you know, supply constrained markets? Yeah. So let me take Pittsburgh, for instance, I, it, which is not a New York City and they have more land. Um, but I was living in Pittsburgh for the past four years and they've, they've, they've got the same thing. Not as bad as Austin, not but these new build sites, um, a lot of fever dreams. And so uh, but what they also have is negative demographics and they've had that for some time. And that's just increasing. And so I do think, um, you know, the biggest thing to look at to, to me is what is the demographic picture? What industry is there? Because I think this is the other thing the Northeast is going to have to contend with as well is, you know, unless we bring back some of this manufacturing, et cetera, there's just, and, you know, there's just not a ton of industry to keep these places going. And yeah. so, if, you know, that's the big problem in the South and Florida, for instance, there's nothing there but, you know, serving the retirees. That's that's the industry of Florida. And so, you know, what can you do if you lose your work from home job, you know, for instance? Like, what what are you going to do? You're going to go wait tables. That's what you're going to do. Are you going to work at Publix if you're in Florida, you know, bagging groceries? That's it. So, so you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, keep, please. But no, so I think the North, there are places, I think, I think that people have to pay attention to the demographics. They have to pay attention to the industry and they have to pay attention to the access to resources. You know, Phoenix, they had to, you know, retire a whole subdivision down there because they didn't have the groundwater. I mean, you know, so I think that those are the types of things. But I do think nationally, this will be a national story. It absolutely will. There will be places that won't be as hard, hit as hard, just like last time, but it'll be a national story. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah, so I was I was about to say, um, you know, I I've long been a, you know, sort of an ancillary study or a, of of post-industrial cities, and and I've wondered like what's keeping them afloat. It's not like you know the same factories that our grandfathers and great grandfathers worked in that uh, you know made the great middle class of America, and um, you you wonder in places like Pittsburgh, Baltimore, where we are. Um, you know, basically the entire Rust Belt that used to be driven by automotive and everything related to automotive, you know, where are these people working and how are they, you know, I can, can I, can I afford a $450,000 house on a Walmart salary? Right. Um, and so those are the demographics that I think most concern me this and, and, the, and not only that, but the changing sentiment in ownership versus rental amongst, you know, sort of the Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z crowd. Um, you know, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, that said, all of that said, what I don't see 
is commensurate housing for that sentiment. I see a lot of luxury rental right. in, in and around Baltimore. But what I don't see is, you know, uh, a 3-2 that somebody can rent for $1,500, right. you know. Jack would know better than anyone. I mean, Jack owns houses all over the city and, and, and around Maryland. And I know that, Jack, you keep your eye on, on building starts and things and, and the, the, the uh, building that's going on, especially around the city. And what I find really alarming is I just don't see the type of housing starts uh, for that type of buyer, for that type of renter. Jack? So let me let me uh, introduce uh, an idea that I think that is never talked about, especially in the context of affordable housing, which is housing consumption. And I've mentioned this on a, a prior episode, mm. but something that like frustrates me about the affordability, the housing affordability conversation is that everyone takes for granted it is like that we must consume the same number of square feet today, tomorrow. And that like, as if there were a human right to consume a thousand square feet of housing per, per capita. And while, while, you know, when history shows us and, you know, that, that, that was not the case, we've, we've, you know, over the past, whatever it is, 80, 80 years, doubled the amount of housing per capita that we consume. And in other countries, they consume much less housing, frankly, in our most luxurious markets like New York city, uh, you know, where houses go for, where, you know, condos go for two, two, three thousand, four thousand dollars a square foot, people are consuming less housing per square foot than folks who work at Walmart. Uh, and so I struggle a little bit, like in the, in, 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 in the context of a rising population, does the, does the market need to drop or do we just need more incomes per household and therefore more humans per household and less square foot per person? And doesn't that Absent a crisis that forces the issue, doesn't the market just consume less housing per capita to balance things back out, right? We, don't, we won't have homeless, we'll just have roommates. And I feel like that, I feel like that idea is like, I don't know, it's just it's never talked about. And then layering on an economy now where you, lo you, you lose your work from you lose your work from home job, you can get another work from home job. I mean, literally half of my employees now don't live in Maryland. We, we, we hire all over the country and it's great, you know, cause I'm paying the same and I get access to a national labor market. My money goes really far in Oklahoma and Texas. Um, and I, so I guess I'm like, I'm, 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 I guess less concerned. You, you may take a pay cut and you may get a roommate, but I don't think you're going to be homeless and I'm not sure that unless like unless we we force sales of all these properties I think that the you know I think that the operators who own this real estate that doesn't have the demand they don't hit their pro formas don't get me wrong they far from, they you know they don't get they don't hit their pro formas their equity does not get paid what it expected it to get paid maybe their equity even takes losses but if you operate the real estate I do think that you can you can fill it in a rising you know in a rising population country. I don't know. I said a lot there, so so free. yeah, it was it apart tying that up with a bow. That was the sort of basically taking a look at the way we consume housing now, 
sort of a philosophical question of, you know, do we just have to go to smaller housing per capita and even bring on, you know, I'm going to finish my basement to turn it into an apartment, um, which we saw a lot of in the 70s. Jack and I have talked about that. You know, if, Melody, if you were to, you know, take a, a ride through Baltimore City in the houses that my great grandparents lived in, they were little row houses. That, you know, as they started to gain wealth, they would go out to the outer edges of the city and build these big single family detached houses, which in the 70s all turned into apartment housing. Right. And so the, the question that Jack and I have uh, bantered a bit was, you know, these houses that we live in now, that are out in the burbs. Are they going to be our next uh, apartment dwelling uh, type houses? Well, the homelessness, right? But so I would say that's that's already increasing uh, quite scarily in places that you know you wouldn't expect it, like Missoula, Montana. You know, uh, like places in Georgia. I mean, this is it's becoming. I, I think so. I think again, we have a bifurcated economy where. Um, you know, so I lived in New York city in a tiny little apartment for seven years and I left because I wanted a washer and dryer and I didn't want to carry my laundry around mm -hmm. anymore. Um, you know, so, so agreed. I, I think that, but again, now you look at somewhere like New York city and if we're not going to have, um, kind of, if, if, if kind of our economy is going to change and, you know, AI is going to take a larger precedence, will New York need as many people? Will that city sustain the same way? I mean, so I think th these are really complicated, you know, questions we're asking, and there's so many different levers that can be pulled. But I want to go to something you said, Jack, and because I want people to hear this, that I, I think you can still make money, but you have to be an active manager. Like you can't, I think that a lot of people bought some of these to be long-term rentals, not understanding what it meant to be a landlord or not understanding you know, how involved this is. But I, I personally think that even with a short-term rental, you could be successful if you, you know, if you really run it well and understand your market and, and you know, hopefully you were smart in how you chose it. Um, but I do, you know, the whole point about, I do think homelessness will increase because if we look at numbers in aggregate, that might uh, confuse us, but with those Americans who can't afford a thousand dollar emergency, they are they're they're leaving and they don't have options. And we've been doubling up quite a bit in that sector. You know, generations moving it under the same roof and things like that. In a in a prior episode, Craig was trying to get me to say that DSCR loans were like the new subprime, basically the new the new liar loans, new ninja loans, but. Um, I, 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 I refuse to, because I feel like there's an important distinction and like, I, I don't see, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I don't see DSCR loans as those liar loans. Um, I, I do because, um, I, and I don't see speculation. Like I have not witnessed like speculation, like people were doing in 2004, 2005, buying a house because it was going to go up. I see, I see easier access to credit and less diligence on operational experience, which concerns me, but I don't know. It's, it's like, you know, but how do you, how can you tell when you're giving out a DSCR loan, who's going to be the good rental operator for the next 30 years and who's going to be the bad rental operator for the next 30 years? I do, I do completely agree that the short-term rental underwriting that 
existed more prevalently now to a lesser extent, using short-term rental daily rates is a problem because that's really hotel underwriting. That's really hotel, really, you know, it's really, you know, hospitality business. But when, but if somebody, but if the underwrite is based off of the 12 month monthly rent, and then you choose to short-term rental it, that should temper the over leveraging and should keep the amount of, you know, bad actors in check. But so from, so from, from my perspective, I don't see speculation happening right now. I see a lot of people excited. I have seen a lot of people excited to get into real estate. And certainly I don't think that all of them are going to be operators in the long term because it's a hard business. But what's your what's your perspective on that? Do you think that there's do you think that there's speculation going on? Or do you think that there's speculation really on the building side and to a lesser extent in the landlord uh flipper side of things? How do you how do you see all that? Everywhere. So I think so Michael Pettis is a great he wrote for the Carnegie Endowment this great uh, article about the bezel. And that's kind of just sort of uh, the speculation that gets in the system and you don't know it's there. It's kind of like we think about um, when you, you know, you're losing weight, you're toning up, but you know that there's still muscle in that. I mean, fat in that muscle, <laughs> if you know what I mean, like it, it's there, but it's hard to see. And um, I think it's everywhere. Uh, you know, so you think it's a psychology thing. You think it's like, yeah, I think the psychology has overtaken us. And I think that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what you're saying, Jack, because I, I know very responsible DSCR lenders. I know these people are good people. They, they've been through it before they want, they're conservative. Um, but I think about them all the time because I think about they're having to go off the facts that they see. And like when you're doing a bank statement loan, you know, I've heard I've heard an originator say this. Well, as long as the money uh, comes in regularly every month, of course it goes out, but it comes in. Well, think about that for a second. How you could make that look very in six months. Um, but the Philly Fed did an excellent paper um, on uh, kind of fraud, and they basically, you know, this was recently published at the beginning of the year as well. There was a lot of interesting stuff at the beginning of the year uh, that you know where they that. That speculation didn't stop. It persisted. And I can tell you, I've seen it. I've, I've been digging into some fraud cases. Uh, it was there in 2019, but what it went on steroids. Um, and I saw it even in your prime origination because FHA non-owner occupied, um, they, they all signed the affidavits that they were actually occupying those homes. And they aren't. And that's starting to show its head. But the Fed basically said that a third of investor loans are typically fraud. But how do you as a lender, how do you how can you determine that? I mean, it is it's impossible. You have to go for the information that's presented to you. And I think the only way is that you have to just know and reserve for the fact that a lot of this activity just because of the nature of the game. I mean, real estate is 85% of global wealth. Like when you get that much money involved, there's going to be fraud. So I, yeah. I think there's more out there than we know. I think it's just starting to show its little head, you know, like I'm hearing about, because people have just been emailing me like crazy. Like, you know, they invested in a property, the guy, it was a big rental they, he was giving them income statements every month. They just found out all that's a lie. They've lost all their money. I mean, there's just, and so we're at that part of the cycle where uh, we're just starting to learn about the fraud. 
And um, I think it's more pervasive than most realize. Do you think, do you think this is going to be so like, you know, the course of the next like 12 or whatever, six to 18 months, do you think that we're going to have like a freak out? And if so, at what point, or do you think it's going to be like a slow slide into just a slow slide, you know, just like war of attrition. And then people are just going to like fall, you know, every week, another one, they just quietly fall away until the market is, you know, noticeably different, materially different at 12 months from now. Um, or do you think that there's going to be like a shock or like a, or like a freak out moment that like where the psychology shifts? Can you know, I, can I, add, can I add to that question? Um, and so is it going to be sector specific? Is it going to be a banking meltdown that then sort of precipitates, um, you know, the, the commercial market, the real estate market? Will it be the commercial real estate market, maybe office that brings down um, sort of uh, valuation on everything? So, yeah, love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, you know, I study what people call the euro dollar market a lot and it's kind of the shadow banking. And, and so, you know, what I'm sensing right now is we're gearing up for a credit event. Uh, you know, it could originate from somewhere like China with somebody like Country Garden or Evergrande. If we have a credit event, I think things will accelerate much faster. And, and this could and I say, and I'm going to say the opposite in just a second, but I say that, you know, no one should think that prices can't come down as fast as they went up. Like that, mm. there's no law of physics that says that won't happen, right? Now, I say that, but if we don't have some kind of credit event or, you know, an exogenous event, um, and if we, you know, go to war, like so many different things could happen here to change this. But if nothing changes from just this moment, we don't have net reduction in employment and we just stay on the same path. I still think uh, we are going to reach trouble. Everybody's going to know it by Q2, the end of Q2 of next year. Um, you know, we've got big tax season in California coming up here in November and December. Uh, I've already heard borrowers very concerned about that. Um, you know, but I think we will have. And so like next year, nothing changes probably about a 5% national reduction in prices is kind of my view. But then in 25, that's probably when we're going to have a deal more, probably around 12 to 15% with a couple of more years of around that 5% price drops before we bought them out completely. That's if nothing changes from today. So you're, you're calling like a 20, 25% national reduction, which means in certain geographies, that's going to be more, right? Because like of a lot more. Yep. Yep. You think it's those, that is, think it's those overbuilding Sunbelt, you know, the, the, the repeat of 2006, you know, led off by Maricopa County, followed by Miami-Dade, like. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think, well, I don't know. I think, I think. Maricopa, I think Miami-Dade, and then, you know, I think, what's this Austin. county? Austin, but what's their county? It's like, I can't remember the name of the county. But anyway, I think those three, they're going to be in a tough competition to see who's going to win here. And, you know, the thing about Texas that I would say is very different from everywhere else, those other two states, is that they are a non-judicial foreclosure market, which you probably know, Jack, and they are you know, them in Georgia are the fastest in the country, <laughs> Super Tuesday, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I think things could get real disorderly there quickly, especially with unpaid property tax. And 
And so, you know, we were talking about where's the opportunity. I, if, if it were me, I'd be out scouring every single unpaid tax uh, bill out there in Austin, Texas, and some of these neighborhoods, because you can go negotiate and say, listen, I'll take you, I'll pay your lien. <laughs> go, you know, like whatever. So, because I think there actually are investors that desperate right now. Um, but yeah, it could, it could be a very slow horrible slog. And then we have an election year next year and nobody is going to want to, you know, everybody's screaming about affordable housing. I personally, and this is kind of my crazy wild theory is I believe the government will probably help subsidize some of the builder write downs if they promise to turn those to affordable housing. And so a lot of those $400,000 neighborhoods will probably start looking like $250,000 neighborhoods uh, are $1,200 to $1,300 of rent neighborhoods. And so I think that's that could be something we see next year as these politicians get harassed by their constituents who are screaming that they can't find an affordable place to live. Yeah, when do the large office holders start to t start to uh, re re asset class their stuff into residential? Yeah. Well, and I think they're already trying to do that. And then vice versa. I mean, you've got short term rental trying to be commercial. It, there's some crazy stuff going on. But I think the commercial real estate crisis is way worse than most are even talking about. I think that everybody makes this assumption class A is going to be fine. In Pittsburgh, where I lived, I lived next door to a 20 building uh, class A office complex that was empty, um, completely empty. And it because it was just it. There's no reason for it anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that it's way worse. I don't think this is about work from home. I believe that we overbuilt before that. You know, you go down to Dallas, they've got two huge high rises going up and they, they're at 40 to 50% occupancy right now. So like we overbuilt even prior to work from home, even when we brought everybody back in, there would still be too much office space. We have to re align. The problem is there's nobody out there talking about solutions right now. And so this is going to be way more painful than it should be, because if you could get people together to talk about, OK, how can we repurpose this? What can we do? You know, how can we make this a, a great community? Nobody's having those conversations because most people are just, you know, worried about their loan, their property, their, you know, so um the commercial aspect could be a real drag on the banks and the overall economy as we have to actually acknowledge those write downs and you know multifamily has the most cmbs that's kind of you know uh needs to be refinanced coming due this month and so like there's there's a lot happening um, but I think that, you know, we will not escape commercial, but people sure are by doing these deals kind of behind the scenes and not talking about them a lot. Um, but it's it's going to be a very rocky 12 to 18 months, in my opinion. Sorry. So um, you mentioned the 70 markets that you track. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us any any bright spots in those markets? Yeah, the minute I say them, they'll no longer be bright spots, right? Because everybody <laughs> will move there. Um, but, you know, Ohio, Cleveland, you know, uh, those areas actually are. And, and they do, to me, uh, if we are going to near shore or bring things back, you know, somewhere like Ohio makes a lot of sense uh, because mm. you can do manufacturing there. And there's access to water, water and there's plenty of farmland and um, but yeah, like a generally that, okay political climate. Generally uh, okay, uh, you know, 
And so I think that's that's where you're seeing decent. Your home prices haven't gone crazy. You're you're seeing transactions. You know, the median I think transaction in Cleveland was around per Redfin was around one hundred and thirty thousand or one hundred fifty thousand last month. So mm-hmm. it tells you that like there's still a market there. Uh, you know, transacting in a, in a affordable type homes, although those could be flips. I don't know. Because uh, I I do know investors have seen Ohio as well, um, but honestly, where I am in Tennessee, I don't even want to say that out loud either. You've got structural issues here, uh, a lot of poverty, uh, no industry, but you've you know you do have affordability. Um, so if you're able to, you you know are can can afford and not worried that you need a work from home job because you would need a work from home job to afford a, you know, a decent house here, but still the tax situation is much better. Sure. So, Jack, anything? No, I'm good. Give me a lot to think about today, Melody. I appreciate I it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, no. And you guys too, this has been a great, you know, I, I always love hearing the other side too, and just uh, kind of understanding where I'm missing something. Uh, and so this has been a great conversation. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Melody. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell people where they can find you on your Substack and online? Sure. Okay, so on uh, X Twitter, I'm M3 underscore Melody, M-E-L-O-D-Y, uh, M3 Melody Substack, uh, M3 underscore Melody YouTube. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn at Melody Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Yeah, I would encourage everybody, if you want to hear more uh, what Melody is uh writing about or uh, talking about uh, via YouTube on, on uh, channels such as this, just search for Melody Wright Housing and you'll find everything. Your Substack uh, stuff is really fantastic, Melody. It just it can't encourage you enough to just keep up the, uh, the writing because I just really enjoy your stuff. Um, man, if there's anything that we can do to help you out in the future, if, there's a, if uh, we could have you back on the show, that'd be fantastic. Definitely. And if you find anybody in your travels who would like to come on uh, our show, please uh, feel free to refer them over. Absolutely, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, no, Absolutely. thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation with both of you. So thank you so much. Absolutely, thank All you, right. guys. Thanks for tuning in. That's Real Investor Radio, episode twenty one. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon.